0: Thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast hosted by Dr. Vikraman Sharomani. The podcast was started in early 2020 to share some of the ideas from his most recent book, Think for Yourself Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, which is available for purchase via Amazon, Bookshop.org, and most other retailers. This episode is the audio portion of a webinar hosted by Dr. Man Sharomani on December 7th with Jeremy Grantham, founder of Boston based investment firm GMO and the Grantham Foundation. The video replay of this discussion is available at www.mancharmani.com.
1: Hey, All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining. Uh, I am absolutely thrilled today to have Jeremy Grantham with me uh, for a conversation about uh, the markets, about the environment and about capitalism and a whole bunch of other topics. Uh, so uh, before we get into the conversation, however, uh, traditional format of my advertising needs to, to, to go forth here. Um, so we of course, have Jeremy here today. Last week, we had Ambassador Hank Crumpton. Um, Ambassador Crumpton was a 24-year veteran of the CIA's clandestine service and spent a lot of time talking about navigating uncertainty to spot opportunities and identify risks and uh, how his intelligence background helps him do that in the corporate world these days. Um, So that replay is available on my website. Uh, Before that, we had uh, Stu Friedman, a professor down at Wharton, founder of the leadership program at Wharton and uh, he talked not only about leadership but also about the dynamics of parenting and how leadership lessons apply to the world of parents uh, at home with kids during a pandemic. So uh, that was available for replay as well. Uh, Rebecca Lissner, uh, an assistant professor at the U.S. Naval War College, uh, came on and talked about her book, uh, An Open World, a new book, uh, really focused on alliances and sort of a opportunistic approach to partnering with certain countries while competing with them at the same time. Uh, So that was, I thought, a very interesting conversation. Again, the replay is available there. Uh, Had Roger Martin, Uh, Before that, um, Professor Martin spent uh, years uh, on the faculty as dean of the University of Toronto, and his most recent book, the topic of our conversation was when more is not better, uh, which was really a criticism, if you will, of capitalism and this quest for efficiency and more, more, more at all costs and the ramifications of that. Uh, That conversation is available. We had David Katz before, Dr. Katz uh, talking about his book that he co-wrote with Mark Bittman, How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. Uh, And despite the topic, we also spent some time talking about Uh, randomized control trials and how research gets conducted and how it can be managed in a certain way. It's all actually in the appendix of his book, probably my most uh, interesting portion of that book, uh, the part I found most fascinating. Uh, For that, we had uh, Susan Helms, a retired three-star general in the US Air Force who had spent 211 days in outer space, uh, talked about uh, outer space, but also uh, uh, the military. for that, we had Rakesh Karana, Dean of Harvard College, talking about uh, education in a time of COVID and, and pandemics and mental health impacts on. On uh, students, etc., cetera. Uh, and we began this fall series with Annie Duke, a professional poker player, talking about probabilistic decision making and how to decide. Uh, again, she also had a new book out that she was able to talk a little bit about. And of course, uh, the main reason we started this series was to promote this book, uh, and available for $20.93 on Amazon is uh, my book, Think for Yourself, which came out this summer. I hope you do get it. Um, happy to answer any questions about that offline. But with that as background and the advertising section of this webinar complete, uh let me uh welcome Jeremy. So Jeremy, thanks for taking the time to join me. Hi, hey, you're welcome. Hey. <laughs> so Jeremy, let's begin with your background. Uh you know, we've got a, a very vari- wide variety of people on this uh this call here today. Uh but let's start with the simple question of how and why did you even begin in the investment
2: business? I was in the uh consulting business out of business school. And uh, that quickly seemed uh, suboptimal, shall we say, to be friendly. Okay. And uh, I was in Manhattan and I lunched with my classmates and I asked myself the question, who was having the best time? And the uh, analysts, the security analysts were having the best time. Mm -hmm. It was a glorious little Full market and flaky little stocks there. Yep. Uh, 1968, 69, uh, where stocks would go up like today, five or ten times in a year and then blow up. And uh, they had a little circuit of people sharing ideas and mm-hmm. basically touting each other's stocks and. Uh, I suppose with hindsight, it was pretty close to pump and dump, but uh, the bottom line was they were very cheerful, very happy, excited. Everyone else seemed in comparison bored. And so I made up my mind to try and get a job and I had a lot of friends in the business. So I, I got a a fairly professionally long list and went down it, checking off pulling all the strings I could. Mm -hmm. And, um, Nearly got a job to go back to London, but uh, just did not. Nearly got a job with a very sexy hedge fund in, uh, in Manhattan, uh, but it slipped. Actually, it was just delayed beyond my time horizon. And uh, so I found myself in Boston yep. interviewing the two giant uh, mutual funds. Fidelity was 1.9 billion assets under management and Keystone funds, was 1.7. And uh, Fidelity uh, blew me off and, and Keystone uh, offered me a job. Yep. And uh, being the financial business, they offered me a totally unnecessary 50% increase from my management consulting fee. <laughs> yep. So that, that was easy and we moved to Boston. And uh, I got so excited that after a puny nine months, I propositioned one of the senior fund managers that he uh, join a friend and me and, and start our own enterprise. And we toot and froed quite a bit. But in the end, he proposed that he start his own firm and that I jo- join him. And so I did. So Dean LeBaron and I started Battery March in mid 1969. So it only took me nine months to uh, roll the dice. And uh, I I spent eight years there as a partner and uh, fell out with the boss. And uh, most of the people who'd been there originally left um, to start our our own enterprise a GMO, Grant The Mayor Van Ovela. Yep, Yep,
1: oh, it's, it's a great story, Jeremy. Uh, here's, here's an interesting follow-up question, which I think uh, some folks here might get a kick out of. So, all right, that's great. Now we know how you got in the business. The more interesting question, I think, is why you've stayed in the business. Because um, you still seem to have the passion and the excitement around investing and navigating some of these uncertain markets. Um, and so what is it that keeps you so excited
2: about markets? In the early days, what kept me excited was, was just the ideas behind investing, what was a good value model. And we
3: yeah.
2: co-developed one of the early dividend discount models, put bells and whistles on it, uh, designed it so that each company had its own regression rate based on the characteristics of the company. And it worked very well. It, it, it beat all the other Measures of value and became the basis of our, our quantitative approach. So the ideas kept me going, but I, I did. I did kind of wake up after about uh, fifteen years of stock picking, thinking, "Oh my God! If I hear another stockbroker tell me the next quarter's earnings, I'm going to throw up." And and very very quickly, in about three months, I I found that that job. Almost um, impossible uh, to put my heart into, yeah. and uh, and so I um, I happily got into uh, quantitative model building with Chris Darnell, who was a a superb mathematician quant. Mm-hmm. and quant, uh, and so we designed some of the first quant products in uh, 1980 81. Yeah. And uh, so I was, I was free uh, to start again. And I did that uh, with a five-year overlap with stock picking to help uh, my colleague, Dick Mayo, in transition. Um, and then we, uh, Chris and I gave up on stock picking completely and, and concentrated on, on quant investing. Gotcha. And we cranked out a lot of new products Harvard business school case about us described it uh, as the sausage factory, because Mm -hmm. with a handful of people uh, we were able to do small cap value, large cap growth, crank, crank, crank. Yeah. And, uh, and after a while that set me thinking about asset allocation, how would you build a portfolio? And so, uh, I I downloaded the last of my responsibilities uh, to Chris Darnell, and uh, and set up uh, on asset allocation and we built a nice book of business for quant and we built a nice book of business for asset allocation and that became my responsibility and i did that <clears throat> for, i think each of them work out at 17 years with a five-year overlap okay so i can just stand doing somewhat the same thing for 17 years <laughs> and of course quant we did all over the world, so that was that was a very uh, profound set of problems. But even then, I found uh, myself getting rather stale and bored with it at the end. And asset allocation was an entirely different set of problems and a new way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty exciting.
3: Yeah,
2: and uh, I did that for seventeen years, and the last five. I was phasing into what I would loosely call propaganda, where yeah. I would concentrate on quarterly letter writing, giving talks, and thinking about uh, the very biggest picture, yeah. the top-down issues, and, uh, and that's where I still am. So I, ha- I haven't been in portfolio management now for 15 years. Sure. So you would say this is the very late stages of my big picture propaganda. (laughs) uh, Starting also 15 years ago, I started to get into uh, climate change investing and uh, grant making and uh, running uh, a foundation, which fairly quickly became a very big issue in the lives of of, uh, my wife and me. And, and, and the children, three children, and um, we slowly and reluctantly built a team. But uh, as the assets grew, we couldn't really keep up with um, our ambitions, which was to, uh, on one hand, make uh, leveraged grants that would move the dial, and on the other hand, would invest our principal in green venture capital, new ideas that would also be potential uh, movers and shakers. Yep. And, um, and that's what we do today. And it's outrageously uh, exciting and interesting actually, because timing is everything. Yep. And there was a lot of luck as, as you can hear that we didn't get into quant because we thought it would become fashionable. We got into quant because it was interesting and I was fed up with stock picking. We got into asset allocation, not because we thought that might become anything, but because it was something I thought I could do, GMO thought it could do, and so on. And uh, I got into propaganda because that was, what <laughs> can you say bad about that, that? That's a thoroughly entertaining activity uh, for those of us who yeah. have even the slightest talent for it. And, uh, and green investing. Uh, draws its uh, significance for me because I have long ago decided that uh, the threat of climate change is the greatest threat that we can do anything about. We we probably can't stop a uh, meteorite from crashing in Mm -hmm. uh, to the North Atlantic and destroying us, but we can do a lot about climate change. And if we do nothing, it does run a very decent risk of destroying a stable civilization as we know it. Yep. So uh, it yep. behoves us all to put our best foot forward. Yeah, well, it's interesting, Gerber, because you
1: said these 17-year cycles existed in your own background, but the climate change, I mean, your, your foundation, you started in the late 90s, right? I mean, so that, that's one that seems to be sticking.
2: Yes, although, to be honest, we were in cruise control for uh, five or 10 years. In okay. other words, we were doing it, we were getting mentally committed, but uh, it was relatively uh, straightforward and pro forma. Uh, we would make our grants to what you might call the usual suspects, yeah. large, effective NGOs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then step by step, we got drawn into more detailed, uh, gotcha. targeted uh, grant making. Okay. So it's been, it's been about 17 years or a bit less, um, okay. yep. and the degree of intensity which started very quickly in, in the stock investing uh, and then gradually faded, actually that's not true, it faded fairly rapidly after a, a good long run, um, but in climate change it's been a slow build. We are much more mm-hmm. committed yeah. and intense uh, today than five years ago. Mm-hmm. and. And five years ago, we were twice as intense as we were 10 years ago. So now we consider ourselves kind of the shock troops, the -hmm. the fanatics, if you will, the people who who burn with as great an intensity as anybody out there. And and therefore we say with some justification, if we can't do this, who the hell can? We don't have much career risk in climate change. We answer to nobody. We can change on a dime. And every couple of months, we sit down with Ramsey Ravenel, who runs the foundation, and we say, tell me again, what are we trying to do here? Mm -hmm. And who does that in in life? It's a great luxury. So we start from scratch every couple of months and rethink, and we pivot, and we pivot all the time, a little bit here, a little bit there. This year has been the big emphasis on green investing perhaps a little less on grant-making, which dominated year after year. Because we feel that green investing is perhaps even more powerful dollar for dollar than the best grant we can make. Because we can invest in a new green technology and, and do 50 of them. And some will fail, a lot will fail, but some will be brilliantly successful. And that money will come back to us typically with interest. And we redeploy it, and it comes back with interest, and we redeploy it out into the setting sun. You can see what a powerful idea that is.
1: Yeah. Well, what's what's interesting, Jeremy, is it sounds like you're a huge believer in capitalism in, in some senses, and that creative power that it brings of deploying capital and private property rights, et cetera. But you've also thought, I think, pretty deeply about some of capitalism's ills uh, and sort of the, the where capitalism sometimes goes off the rails or, you know, if not kept with some guardrails or some protections can really, you know, whether it's inequality, compounding or what have you. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well as, you know, we are sitting here uh, speaking virtually uh, uh, during the middle of a pandemic. So, uh, and insofar as COVID affects your thinking around inequality or some of these other ills that may come out of The thinking around capitalism. I'd love to hear your thoughts on those
2: topics. I'm not a a great fan of today's western capitalist model. I think we pushed far too hard behind the Milton Friedman hard-nosed almost Darwin, Darwinistic approach. You know, the only social responsibility is to maximize your profits, which is, I think, bad business anyway, but it's deplorable in the sense that if a human being adopted that policy of the only responsibility I have is to maximize my income, he'd be considered a sociopath. So I, I think without really thinking about it, we have backed into a sociopathic corporate philosophy. And there is finally in the last couple of years a bit of a, of a reaction to that. And Lord knows it's overdue because really since the mid 70s, the pendulum has been swinging against equality, against the average worker and in favor of the rich. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: We have had every bit, well, we've had approximately the same amount of productivity as they have had, say, in, in France and the UK since the mid 70s. And the average worker... in in France has had an increase of 160% for an hour's work. And the Brits have had about 70. And the US has had less than 10%. So there's been barely any change in the rewards going to the average worker and an hour's work. That was not the case for the 70 years prior to that. We had substantial productivity that actually for the first half of the 70 years went more to the worker and for the last, the second 35 years was split evenly. And then a merciless kind of 98-2 split in favor of of the richest half and particularly the richest 10% and particularly uh, the richest 1%. So they were getting all the productivity gains uh, Mm -hmm. to a degree that no other developed country has shared. So inequality has been the uh, exceptional feature of American uh, capitalism. And the other feature has been the lack of interest um, from the Justice Department in monopolies.
3: Mm.
2: So the monopoly uh, feature has increased in almost every industry. And that is true pretty much around the developed world, uh, but particularly in the US. And the political power helped by Citizens United From the supreme court and so on and other decisions since then Uh, the power of the uh, corporate system and the power of the rich has increased unlimited dark money uh, campaign contributions so you can basically buy uh, you can buy your representatives and senators these days you can threaten them with colossal negative advertising or if they vote the right way with colossal positive advertising, sure. which is a, a bit of a backbreaker uh, for their careers, yep. and a real test of their ethics, which in general, they have failed dismal yep. at. Yeah. And uh, by the way, uh, Schumpeter, who's one of my few fans, I'm, I'm one, <laughs> who amongst the economists is one of the few that, that I really respect, um, Joseph Schumpeter, he, he made a big point that the nature of capitalism, unless we were lucky, was that by, by its very characteristics, it would tend to get more powerful. And as it got more successful, made more money, it would have more political influence. As it had more political influence, it would make sure that corporate taxes, et cetera, were reduced and the regulations were controlled, and it would tend to, to increase its power further in a vicious cycle uh, for be the people and a virtuous cycle for corporations. And that is exactly what has happened. Corporations own all the regulatory bodies that are meant to protect society. And a lot of the regulations that were put in place up to uh, 1965, 75, 85 even, which was a much sweeter spot for capitalism. So, Jeremy, I'm going to ask a
1: relatively controversial question. If I keep on this line of reasoning, would you suggest then that perhaps Karl Marx and sort of the communist logic of is, is sound in the sense that capitalism self-destructs if it doesn't actually get put back on track? Will the workers of the world eventually unite? Is it you know, the 99% turns to the 99.5, which turns to 99.9, which turns to the 99.99 against the 0.01. I think
2: Um, in comparison uh, to Karl Marx, uh, Schumpeter had a a kind of second generation, more realistic model, which is it gets so extreme that eventually society, the the social system pushes back. You don't have to put up the barricades but the voters change, the regulations change, the Supreme Court eventually changes, and the pendulum uh, moves back. It turns out that since the Gilded Age of the 1880s, which was desperately unequal, the pendulum helped along by the Depression and World War II, moved in favor of egalitarian uh, conditions, peaking around 65, ironically, when I arrived in America. I've always felt and written that I arrived in the sweet spot, but there's now been a a, a lot of work done and on that topic and a nice book published, but I'm I'm trying to remember what the hell it's called. It's called
1: Upswing by Robert Putnam.
2: That's it. Yep. And uh, it completely documents a lot of things that I felt in my bones. uh, And that was that things were a whole lot better and more equal. And it turns out that equality is correlated with everything that matters to me. Uh, Life expectancy, the amount you give uh, to foreign countries, uh, morbidity, educational standards, number of children to 16 year olds. You can hardly think of one. Uh, Number of people in prison, the more equal societies simply outscore the less equal ones. Well, the bad news, and something that isn't appreciated by your typical well-educated Boston businessman, for example, is um, that we are now the least equal of all developed countries, and Mm -hmm. that we have been sliding down uh, the Gini ratio scale, Gini ratio being a measure of equality uh, uh, for uh, 50 years, and have now secured not only the worst position in the developed world, but distinctly worse than quite a few in the developing world, including notably China, mm-hmm. who is uh, less unequal, very unequal, incidentally, but less unequal uh, than the US. Yeah. And, and you can also look at the social indicators and see that they too, since 1965, uh, have have been... Uh, yeah, yeah. ...been okay. declining, deteriorating.
3: Yeah.
2: And, you know, when I arrived, we'd be say, number four in, in math competence. And now we are number 19 yep. amongst the, the, and some of those ahead of us are South Korea and, and uh, parts of China and so on. Sure. Not all just the rich, super rich countries. So we've just been declining in, in almost everything that matters. So I like to say, yes, we are exceptional. We're exceptionally bad. But <laughs> and, and something to come back to is the last, of the American, except true exceptional features, in my opinion, is venture capital and and the great research universities, which are very closely sure. linked together. Sure, that, that is a really powerful feature. in In a fairly dopey, fat and happy capitalist system, too monopolistic, not risk taking enough, too invested in security, buying your own stock back, don't do your own R and D, buy it out of the venture capital industry. You don't have to expense uh, in a risky fashion. You can wait and make it a capital transaction and and know what you're getting. Yes, you won't make as much money on average, but you'll have more security, less boat rocking. And that is uh, lovely for minimizing your career risk as an executive. And Mm -hmm. career risk, as we all know, drives the system.
1: So, Jeremy, I'm sure we could go down this path and talk a long time about some of these topics, but I want to turn to some of the the, the many, many questions I've received both before and then are coming in now. So people are typing in the Q&A tab. I'll, I'll look at that. You don't need to, to watch there. But um, there's obviously the question um, uh, about the topic that you and I have spent a lot of time talking about over the last 10 or 12 years here, which is, bubbles, Um, and whether or not valuations are appropriate, how do you think about the financial markets uh, on average, understanding not in the nitty gritty. Uh, And I'm going to throw a couple other topics that got brought up into this one question and let you answer it as you wish. Uh, There's a question about Bitcoin. Uh, How do you think about Bitcoin? Uh, Is this a venture capitalist new technology uh, attacking the world of money? ESG investing, which you've, uh, I guess, danced on, real estate uh, and interest rates. Uh, and then the last one I'll put in this bucket of bubble thinking is SPACs um, and sort of the idea of, um, of of these blank checks that are being funded, uh, some of which are being written into purchasing companies and how that fits with this model you've said of sort of outsourcing innovation effectively.
2: So... Starting uh, a big, big question, apologies. <laughs> so that's at least seven. Yes, but,
1: um, I understand.
2: <laughs> SPACs should be illegal. Um, mm-hmm. It's a way of basically es- escaping any of the prudence and, and uh, regulation that the SEC should be insisting on. And uh, nevertheless, as I mentioned to you, my fortune has been inadvertently oh. tied up in, in a SPAC. Um, there are closing in on 200 this year, and, and they are enterprises of such significance that their purpose cannot yet be revealed. This was one in, in the South Sea bubble of 1721. And, and everyone, for the 200, uh, 300 years since the South Sea bubble, next next year, by the way, is the 300th anniversary, yeah. um, have been using that as unbelievable that they could get away with an IPO uh, whose purpose would not yet be revealed. And who, by the way, did abscond with the money. And a SPAC is by definition, all 200 of them are like that. Give me the money, I'll do something useful. It's an impossibly bad um, uh, way of investing and uh, encourages the most obscene level of speculation. Having said that, Seven years ago, uh, we made the biggest single investment in a single company we've ever made because we thought it would drive uh, the green system. And uh, it, it was in QuantumScape yep. and- battery, uh, battery company. A solid state lithium ion enterprise that was already three years old. And, um, and we bought in you know, to the B series or whatever, paying up handsomely from day one, I might say. So you could say we were the suckers who came in late. Um, But um, by the time it was done as a SPAC a few months ago, it had risen to uh, four times our investment in seven years. Very, very good, but not utterly spectacular. And then we waited for the approval of this, that, and the other, and uh, the day before Thanksgiving, it, it had gone to 23, bobbing around quite violently, I might say. Uh, so that was nine times our investment. And then the day after Thanksgiving, it was approved. They're all approved. When you're selling at 23 and you, you, you do the deals always at 10, you can guarantee it's about a million to one it will be approved. But nevertheless, on approval, the stock went up 65% for the afternoon and opened up a third... A, a, on Monday morning for, again, for a a minute or two, it was trading at 20 times our investment. So here we were with a company that is really managed very conservatively, uh, understating below the radar, doing brilliant science. Uh, Our solid state battery is half the volume and half the weight much less material and therefore intrinsically at scale, substantially cheaper, but with twice the power to weight ratio, doesn't break into flame, into fire, much safer, and charges in less than 15 minutes, one aspires to about 10 minutes, which makes um, the, the downside of electric cars very, very modest indeed. And it means that you can build an electric car cheaper than a gas or diesel as well as running it and maintaining it much more cheaply. So it's a done deal when it works. It will take quite a few years from today. Uh, But in this particular market, even though it may be three or four or even five years before it runs down the VW uh, uh, line, production line, um, here it is at this. It's it's moved up to a level that is more than 10% of the net worth of our foundation and my assets added together. Um, and I can't sell until at least May the 1st. So you can imagine my, the creative tension because I am about to explain to you that I think this is as classic a bubble as I have seen, uh, getting up there now co-equal with the previous world record of 99, 2000, the tech bubble. And every bubble of that kind has always ended fairly badly, actually very badly, to be honest. And uh, and I feel that in, in, in kind of standards of 99, we're somewhere between about July, maybe July, August of 99 and February 2000. In other words, it would not amaze me if the market broke on Monday. And it would not amaze me if it just about by the skin of its teeth made it to May the 1st when I could sell. Yep. So this this is almost Hilarious in its irony, yeah. Uh, for me.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm not letting you off the hook. I want to hear the thoughts on Bitcoin.
2: Bitcoin, I'm not an expert. I, I, I pass. It, it looks to an amateur uh, in terms of the details. It looks like a classic bubble. Um, ESG is very serious in Europe and has picked up enormous steam in the last year, as has all recognition of, of the green problem and a Mm -hmm. willingness to deal with it. It is moving at a very rapid pace all around the world, as are green technologies. They are far ahead, year after year, covering more ground in the costs of energy, the the costs of storage, the costs of decarbonizing across the board, making wonderful progress, full of opportunities. Greening the economy is going to take tens of trillions of investment But it will be an investment that will not only save us from rack and ruin, but in many cases will make terrific money. Uh, You'll be insulating houses and have a decent societal return on that. You'll be greening the grid system, et cetera, et cetera, more R&D. These will have handsome returns and done with government money at zero real interest rates. This is one of the all-time great bargains. Um, real estate, the bottom line is land acquires all the benefits of productivity, always had, always will, uh, tell the Duke of Westminster, whose own land, uh, most of Westminster uh, uh, since the Middle Ages. Interest rates, uh, of course, the lower rates uh, tend to drive asset prices higher, which brings me to the most profound and interesting part of your question, which has to do with value. Bubbles don't, you can't time a bubble breaking on value. Um, Every every bubble breaks when it's horribly overpriced. That's a given, but it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. Uh, The timing of a bubble breaking uh, historically is more touchy-feely. You need to see crazy demonstrations of individuals in particular, but institutions as well, committing heart and soul to the craziness. And that's a pretty good indicator that you're beginning to run out of time. And we did not see that um, since 99, 2000, uh, Mm -hmm. except in the housing market. The housing market in 06, 07 and 08 pretty well told you, you'd have a bust, which you did, it behaved beautifully. But in terms of the stock market, we've had nothing like that craziness. Mm -hmm. Uh, of of 2000 until recently. And in 2000 we had had nothing like the level of 1929 until 1999. So we had 29 which was full of craziness, 99 full of craziness, and now uh, post-COVID we have had, we have acquired the sort of crazy investing stories across the board that were profoundly lacking in what was really a fairly dreary 12 year record bull market which just kind of chugged along and never, um, for a second or two, uh, three years ago, it started to gather steam and then it fizzled, uh, in order to tick off uh, bubble breaking characteristics, you need a very big move in the last 21 months. You need to cover 60% and, uh, This is a special case, of course, because of COVID, but we have blown through that 60%, not in 21 months, but in nine months. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the indices are through 70% and moving like a rocket ship. So this thing could go up another 20%, 30% in a hurry, Um, but it is checking off all of these crazy indicators one by one. And one of the best indicators is the hostility towards bears. In 1929, uh, you were in physical danger of being set upon on Wall Street, and your character was definitely going to be assassinated. Nothing like that happens again until 99. In 99, I was shocked, even almost heartbroken, by our clients. We'd been fired many times by then, but we had never been fired in the way we were in late 99, as if we had deliberately, maliciously lost the money.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: There is nothing more irritating than seeing your neighbor get rich. And that's what the institutional bosses were seeing. Some guys who'd taken a lot of risk and had growth portfolios were doing brilliantly and the handful who were heavily in value were doing badly and they could not stand it. And mm. they were seriously fed up. And, uh, and nothing like that follows again, but it is now picking up. It is now becoming a little dangerous to be a bear uh, that the guy with the bell on, on uh, uh, CNBC uh, was accusing me of, of being uh, too rich for my own good and I didn't want the other people to get rich. Uh, in other words, he's, he's now was willing uh, to attack me for being a bear um, at, uh, on the grounds that people have a divine right uh, yeah. to keep invested uh, yeah. in, in, in a crazy bubble. And they do, and they always will. Yep. Big, big companies in the investment business cannot, from a business risk point of view, cannot commit themselves uh, to saying that a market is dangerous. They never do, and they never will. Yeah. Which means that from a business perspective, it makes sense to them to uh, be positive, 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 all the way off, crash and burn, regroup as fast as they can, and have another long cycle. And individuals are therefore fed a fairly remorselessly optimistic uh, set of recommendations Mm -hmm. right up until they have stepped off the cliff. And it will always be that way. It is far too commercially dangerous uh, to stand out against the bubble because you will never get the timing right. Mm -hmm. If If you set that as a threshold, I am not going to call a bubble unless I get the timing right, then you, of course, can never do it, it because it's unachievable. Yep. My, my definition of success, by the way, is quite a, a humble one, and it goes like this. There will be some time in the distant future or the near future, but sooner or later, there will come a time when you will be grateful that you ducked, <laughs> right? Yep, yep, you no. actually You will save money if you get out from the day we say get out. So we were way too early in Japan. We were way too early in 99. And uh, we pretty well got the housing bubble on the nose, but um, one one in 50 years is is not too many. Mostly we're we're very early. You're always going to be early as a uh, Mm -hmm. value-oriented manager. Mm -hmm. But from the day we got out, we made money on the round trip. It Perfect. did turn out that the market eventually went decently lower uh, in, in the US, much, much lower in Japan, way down in the housing bust, uh, house prices and stock prices. And I'm pretty confident it will happen again. Intellectually, calling a bubble is not that difficult because the data gets to be pretty obvious. What is difficult is keeping a book of business while saying it. Yep. And this is, this is no exception. So I, so I have to ask,
1: Jeremy, because I know lots of people are asking or, and are curious, does this make you excited about value investing today?
2: I suspect that value investing in terms of stock picking and rotating is uh, never going to be what it was for 100 years ending in 2000 because I believe the value added through rotating the portfolio uh, is not what it was. However, the parameter value itself, whether you take yield or price to book or whatever, or better yet, a fancy dividend discount model, uh, the parameter, of course, ebbs and flows. It became uh, a very high uh, multiple of the uh, good guys in 2000, the, the expensive guys to the cheap guys, a very, very high multiple, the world record, 35 times earnings. The previous high in 1929 was 21 times earnings.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the same with price to book, very high multiple indeed. And, um, and then, of course, it moves back towards normal. But since 2000, um, I, I do think that value has become more popular, and therefore the parameter doesn't work quite as effectively. Mm-hmm. But the parameter is now as cheap relative, let's call it high growth and low growth. Okay. High growth stocks versus the low growth because then you don't worry about definitions. Uh, that ratio ebbs and flows and low growth now are about as cheap as they have ever been in history. One or two other occasions, rather similar. Mm-hmm. And from that level, you can pretty well guarantee that over five, 10, 15 years, you will look pretty darn good as the pendulum swings back. And typically it takes quite a few years.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay, good. Uh, So there's a whole bunch of different types of questions here, one that caught my eye here. um, Jeremy, I'll ask you, uh, I think I'll I'll summarize it. It's, you know, you've had an exceptional career. um, You've navigated uncertainty quite well. You think about swans, black swans, et cetera. How do I say do you think it's possible there can be an outcome of more election uncertainty over the next three to four weeks even that's a very short-term oriented question, but um, You know, is it conceivable that uh, this is a risk we should worry about?
2: God, I hope not. Oh That would be so bad. What we have seen has so undermined American reputation uh, internationally I'm still a a Brit and we're not doing very well either, but, but international views of the condition of American capitalism and American democracy and American inequality is really bad. And, and uh, Americans don't really get it. And it does have consequences, of course. And please, uh, please the gods not to have not to have any further trouble, because to have the president denying uh, the authenticity uh, and, and, and browbeating the Republicans who've been uh, checking on the vote the way that has happened, this is desperately undermining. The, the social contract is a very critical issue, and I know you've worked on this yourself. Um, But our social contract is is in tatters compared to the 60s. We are simply not prepared to suck up personal pain in the interest of of the community. Mm -hmm. And and one of the most clear demonstrations of that is the refusal to wear masks. And, And to treat mask wearing as an individual right, I like to say it's not analogous to the right not to wear a seatbelt. You know, why are you telling me to wear a seatbelt? You're inflicting, uh, you're diminishing my individual liberty. My attitude is be my guest, get yourself killed, because that really isn't a threat to anybody else. Wearing a face mask is more analogous to insisting on the right to drive drunk, where you are pretty well bound to cause damage to other people as well as yourself. And that's why they send you to jail. That's why they insist on it. And it's the same with mask wearing. We're not asking you to wear a mask to protect yourself. Society doesn't worry that much about you yourself. You're being asked to do it to protect society. And other countries where the social contract is in better shape have simply done a good job. Our, Our ability to handle COVID has been wretched. There are two components to that. There's the effectiveness of of the system, the government, which we have been terrible, and the Brits have been terrible. And then quite separately and distinct, uh, there is the effectiveness of the people. And we have been terrible, and the Brits have been terrible. Take Japan. Japan has had a a government that has been quite incompetent. They have less confidence in the government's handling of COVID in Japan than any other country, including the U.S., (laughs) and the uk that have every justification uh, for feeling badly and uh, and yet japan has done a 20th as badly as we have why because the individuals the oldest population by the way uh, on the planet the individuals are so respectful of society and their neighbors yeah. you know they and they're very of course uh, into hand washing they don't shake hands uh, but they are respectful of people's distance, social distance, and so on, and and they look after each other. So they have done brilliantly better. And of course, Taiwan is the extreme case where the people are great, and there the government is great. The vice president uh, was cheating because he he is an epidemiologist. (laughs) And uh, that really is a spectacular advantage. So they have done everything right in terms of minute uh, tracing and, and checking and testing. Yep. And the consequences, they've had seven deaths in a population of over, two, uh, of over 20 million. Yep. In Bristol County, Massachusetts, we have had 890 deaths with a population of half a million.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's fair that the, the distinction between this individual focus and community sort of respect, if you will, and the communal Uh, sense is is a big delta. That's true. Uh, So I want to ask a fun question here, Jeremy, that I ask uh, every one of my guests, which is, do you have a favorite book or a book that you'd recommend to folks? um...
2: Well, uh, to keep it on topic, I would recommend Upswing. Okay. And uh, you provided the name of the author conveniently.
1: Yep. Robert Putnam uh, wrote the book, The Upswing. I
2: would also recommend The Spirit Level, uh, which is a Precursor of the same idea, a yep. decline in equality, a decline in all the social indicators that are correlated with equality, which is to say pretty well everything. I believe it's called the level in uh, in America, mm-hmm. but if you Google spirit level, you will get yep. it. It's a series of Brit authors, and uh, but they take a, a detailed look at America along the way.
1: Excellent. How about uh, movies or mini-series? Do you have any that you are particularly fond of or that you'd recommend?
2: This has been a great time for everybody to get into old movies and TV series, hasn't it? This this nine month and tucked away in the country, uh, a lot of us, that is particularly the case. And I have decided finally that I like uh, series and uh, movies that involve at least one very good person. So you can have a brilliantly produced series like *Sopranos*, but after a bit, I think to hell. Why should I care about these bunch of thugs? And and the movies that pass that test are *High Noon* and *A Man for All Seasons*. Two <laughs> of my absolutely favorite movies about people standing firm under pressure uh, that, and doing the right thing.
1: Excellent. I have not and, seen. Uh,
2: in TV series, <laughs> I'm 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 enjoying. Uh, white queen i love historical series mm-hmm. when they're done well with good performances and so on and this is followed by the white princess and uh, the spanish princess so it goes on forever which is great it <laughs> 50 episodes from start to finish and oh. although it's not all historically guaranteed accuracy it gives you a pretty darn accurate general impression of a time period uh, that very few people know much about
1: okay good well thanks sorry i wanted to make sure i snuck those questions in uh but let's go back to some of the other questions in the last few minutes we have here jeremy uh what are your thoughts about inflation uh or deflation uh obviously the the impact of Globalization contributed to some of the deflationary pressures and lower prices, but one might make an argument, I've made this argument, that technology has been as powerful, if not more powerful than these globalization-driven deflationary pressures. Uh, But do you worry about that? And then a related portion of this question is implications that might have for the US government debt levels uh, or for debt in a more generic sense.
2: Yes, I, I, I don't worry. And never have about government debt levels and, and inflation. I have never written a quarterly letter, which I did for 20 years, that, that uh, featured inflation or debt. Uh, internal debt. Foreign debt can always kill you. If you're a weak currency and you borrow in a strong currency, you can be hung out to dry. I'm talking about local debt. Let's say Japan used to freak everybody out for 30 years because they were the first into very high levels of of government debt. And my attitude was always, why should I worry about one set of Japanese owing money to the other set? It's double entry bookkeeping. We should be equally impressed that they found so many Japanese who were rich enough to lend the money. (laughs) as worry about the fact that they had so many who needed to borrow the money, the government. We have never had more debt in the developed world than we have today. We have never had lower inflation. Dudes, that is not a connection apparently you should worry about. Uh It really is not. Um, Going forward, however, I, I am a strong advocate of public spending with an enormously green spin. You'll get a high return, you'll borrow at nothing, what is not to like, the bargain of all times, and keep on doing that until and if inflation comes back to a serious level. I welcome quite a bit of inflation. It does many things effectively. It lowers debt levels, it favors debtors, which in this case, uh, college debt and so on, is a terrific idea. Hmm. I want to get in the last word if we have time. Yes, please,
1: Jeremy. Absolutely. On the,
2: on the key thing I have not answered, and that has to do with value. So interest rates have driven up, and always will, uh, asset prices across the board. And I would like to remind people what that really means in r- real life. We saw it in the housing bubble. You live in a house. You are told that your house price is doubled. 10 years later, let's say you're told that your house price is halved and it's back to where it was. Let me point out that you know better than anyone that the services that that house offered you never changed. Your real intrinsic wealth is a house. To say that it doubled in value and then halved again is to get into what I call perceived wealth. People perceive themselves as richer in that ridiculous uh, housing bubble encouraged by the Fed, including Yellen, by the way. And, um, and then they considered themselves poorer. So what, what you get is a wealth effect, and then deal with the devil. You get an anti-wealth effect as the house market collapses again, back to where it came from, and it kicks in with an anti-wealth effect just at the wrong time, and you get a very severe Recession and a lot of house defaults and so on. Let me take a second example. You own a forest. I do own a modest forest in Vermont. And when you bought them back 20 years ago, you'd get a 6% yield. You'd be able to, or a 5% yield, you'd be able to cut the forest periodically in a sustainable way, one hopes, and you could get 5% yield return from it. And if not in Vermont, then certainly in Georgia, where the trees grow a little faster. And then they bid up the price of everything, triple A real estate, junk real estate, farms, forests, And the yield has gone from six to three. The yield on a farm in in Kansas has gone uh, from five to two and a half, from six to three. Mm -hmm. And what are the consequences for the person who owns the forest? Absolutely nothing. On their original cost, they they continue to get 6%. If they sell out, then they can only get 3%, their income hasn't changed. And if in 20 years it drifts its way back to a 6% yield once again, you have round tripped like the housing bubble to no consequence. And the Mm -hmm. same is true of the market. If you take a company, the company doesn't change. The house didn't change, the forest doesn't change, the farm doesn't change. But we can kid ourselves that the companies change. But in reality, they don't. Johnson & Johnson stays as Johnson & Johnson, and it yields 4%. You bid it up so that it yields only two. In the end, all you can eat, all you can spend is the dividend yield. And you have gained nothing by taking the yield down from four to two. And for a beginner, someone who's coming in to start the the process, they can now double their money instead of doubling their money at 6% yield in 12 years, it takes them 24 years. Mm -hmm. And so as that difference compounds, you are quickly left hopelessly behind. So none of the newbies coming along trying to accumulate wealth can compound it the way we all did when the yields were twice as high. So prices going up are a very mixed blessing for the people who own. It doesn't make a lot of difference. For the people yet to own, it's a killer. Net-net, society is better off with lower asset prices, but the same underlying economy. Trust me, the doubling of the stock market has not doubled the economy. Economic growth, in the U.S. has been steadily slowing in this great bull market that goes back in, uh, all the way uh, in, in, into the 80s when uh, we sold once upon a time at seven, eight times earnings in a bear market and 14 times earnings in a bull market. And now we sell you know, 20 times earnings in an ordinary market and, and 30 times in a Super Bowl.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: this is a bad idea. People don't get it but they convinced themselves only in the stock market uh, that reality changes because the stock price has changed. And if you're in the forestry or farmland business or the real estate business, you know that is not the case. You can see it more clearly. And in the stock market, you can be hoodwinked and we have been once again. All right.
1: So Jeremy, I would let you have that as your last word if it was a slightly more optimistic. So I want to get from you uh, a little ray of hope. Maybe we go back to the green investing or something, but uh, leave everyone with- VC. The thing about VC
2: is you get in on the ground floor. When you buy today, you buy a stock in an inflated market. You are paying twice the book, twice the asset ratio that we used to pay 25 years ago.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But when you get into VC, you are sharing the original investments with mm-hmm. the entrepreneurs and you're horse trading and they're trying to get as much as they can, but they are not able to get as much as they can as the established corporations who double their price to book ratios. Got it. So we are much closer. We are getting a bargain. The Got advantage it. of VC relative to an overpriced market is more than it is in normal conditions where it's pretty attractive anyway, because you're taking more risk coming up with new ideas, but now we're even better.
1: Perfect. Well, Jeremy, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. We've, we've, we've blown through the hour. I could talk to you for another hour or two, I'm sure. Uh, this has been very insightful. I have a ton of already positive feedback flying in here. Lots more questions, uh, but we'll have to save them for another, uh, another conversation at another time. Uh, but I do want to thank you again. So, uh, well, it, It's you. a pleasure.
0: Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mansharamani. As a reminder, the video replay of today's episode is available at www.mansharamani.com. Finally, if you've not already done so, we encourage you to subscribe to the Think for Yourself podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. Thank you.